I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to the Nordic Nation podcast from Faster Skier. In this episode, we have Rosie Frankowski, who spent the last eight years based in Anchorage while training and competing with APU under head coach Eric Flora. During that time, she has been a consistent force in the domestic race scene, earning the opportunity to race in 24 World Cups along the way. She also placed 21st in the 30K Classic during the 2018 Olympics and took 24th in the 15K Skate during the 2019 World Championships in Seefeld, Austria. And all the while, she's funded her career independently, balancing training with her job at a nonprofit working to improve downtown Anchorage, while also volunteering at a local boys and girls club in an underserved neighborhood. This year, Rosie landed on the Super Tour podium nine times and took second to her teammate Rosie Brennan in the 20K skate at U.S. Nationals in Soldier Hollow. Despite this consistency, she came up just shy of her goal of making a second Olympic team but still ended up winning the overall Super Tour standings, which means she has start spots for period one of the 2022-23 World Cup season. Leaving the Olympic quad, Rosie is making a few transitions in life and training focus, which she shares more about in this conversation. Before we jump in, here's a quick note from our sponsor, Concept2. This episode is brought to you by Concept2 and the Concept2 Ski Erg. Concept2 is the designer and manufacturer of the Ski Erg, a training tool for Nordic skiing and for general fitness. Located in north-central Vermont, the Concept2 family rose in the summer and skis in the winter. The skier grew out of the time-tested design of the Concept2 rowing machine. As dedicated skiers, we know this much is true. It's not always easy to get out on snow in the winter, or out on roller skis for that matter, in the summer. The skier is a perfect dryland training option for skiers or anybody looking to improve their fitness. The second-generation skier allows for single-stick and double-pulling. Take your skiing and upper-body conditioning to a new level with the skier. You can find more information about skiergs and their PM5 performance monitors at concept2.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here today. And I'm hoping to start off, if you can kind of just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background with skiing, just how you got started and, and just kind of what led you through to being where you are today. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm Rosie Frankowski. Um, I am a Nordic skier now based in Alaska, originally from Minnesota, um, from Minneapolis proper. Um, I started skiing when I was in high school for the Southwest high school ski team. Uh, one of my best friends skied and also my parents wouldn't let me do traveling volleyball because it was too expensive. So they said, pick a sport, like a high school sport. And I thought, well, skiing's like the most expensive one. And so I'm going to kind of spite them. And then also it helped that my friends skied. And so I started skiing freshman year, but didn't really like, I like tried it. Um, I wouldn't say I was like really that dedicated into it or anything. Um, Just because learning how to ski is really hard. And you know, it's, it was fun, but it was like, uh, this isn't like great. Um, And then I did track that following spring. And then ended up like really enjoying running and then doing cross country in the fall. And so I got into that like athlete cycle that I feel like so many high school athletes do where then you do skiing in the winter. And then I was a little better at skiing. I was in like much better endurance sports shape. And so it was way uh, more enjoyable of an experience. And so then sophomore year is where I really like, you know, actually attended every practice and got into skiing and um, found like some success, like in the Minnesota state scene. Um, and by success, I mean like 15th in state, we're not talking like winning, 
but it was really fun. And I had a really great group of um, teammates, uh, really cool coaches that just like loved it. And so we would train in the mornings before school at like 6am and we're all so into it. And it was just, it was really fantastic. And from there, then I kind of like progressed a little in high school. Um, I wouldn't say I got like that much faster, but I did really like enjoy training and I wanted to go ski in college. Um, and then I started looking at schools that had skiing and like ac academics, obviously. Um, and I also had to pay for college myself. So that was kind of like a factor of a lot of the ski schools are located like on the East coast and they're, you know, like liberal arts schools that are really expensive. And so, and I wasn't fast enough to have any kind of scholarship for skiing. So um, it was kind of like, well, what am I going to do here? And I got lucky because Northern Michigan university had this, like, it was a scholarship competition program where you could win a full ride for four years academically. And so I actually did end up winning one of those. And it's great because it paid for all of my college, but it was all based on academics, which like was, you know, a lot, I think in the retrospectively, it was a lot less stressful than people who have to like perform athletically every year to keep an athletic scholarship. Um, and so I walked onto the NMU team. Um, my freshman year was a little rough. Like I wouldn't say that, well, I had mono the summer before freshman year and like, like the mono where you're in bed for a month. Um, and so I didn't really enter in shape at all. And then like, it was a huge jump in intensity and ability level and like even like ski skill level and roller ski level. And so it was like a really uh, tough year to navigate that and also like be going to school for, you know, away from home, all that. Um, but I did like, it was great. I clicked into the NMU team right after they had done um, the women in 2007 had like swept the podium at NCAAs. So unknowingly, I was on like a really strong team. And so that level was like, here's the level where we're, I was at before and here where I need to get to. And I just like could bridge that. Although I did end up actually getting cut after my freshman year. It's kind of a longer story, but made my way back onto the team sophomore year um, and was able then to like kind of progress the next three years um, at NMU and left with like a, um, the opportunity to go ski after college. And that's what brought me to Alaska. And then I've been on the APU team for like eight years now, I guess, two Olympic cycles, which is crazy. Um, and now I'm kind of at like another transition point in my career where I'm figuring out what this year will look like and then kind of what the future will look like too. And I think it's, it's awesome to hear kind of that, um, you know, not necessarily being like the, I was, I was on every podium at junior nationals, <laughs> you know, um, because I think, you know, more and more, it seems like we see, you know, we see somebody who was a standout in high school, standout in college or didn't go to college and then moving on. Um, so it's awesome to kind of hear more about that, that type of experience. Um, and what was it, you know, just in thinking about skiing and, and those experiences, like, what was it despite setbacks and maybe questioning, like, am I at the same level as some of these other people around me? Like, what kept you motivated and, and what kept you kind of in the sport and eager to continue? Yeah, you know, I think I got really lucky in a weird way where, like, ignorance is bliss. Like, I didn't realize how bad of a skier I was. And I don't mean that in, like, a demeaning way. I just, like, was really insulated from... I had no idea about junior nationals till I went as a senior and then I got like 97th place. So like, I, I just didn't know that there was this other level and that almost worked out well in kind of 
like that strive of perfectionism you see amongst Nordic skiers where they're like, think they're like really bad if they're not on that level. And I just didn't know it existed. Um, so I, I do think I benefited from that. Also, um, frankly, like I've always had a really strong group of teammates around me and a lot of them have been like some of my best friends. And so skiing's fun. It's always been fun. Um, there was in high school, like that's what my friends and I did was we would go and exercise, I guess. Um, and you know, on the weekends we'd go to ski races and like, it was the team and the friendships that really kept that like, as you know, a really positive thing in my life and a lot less focused on like results. Um, and then I think also like I am really type A and I really like exercising and training. And then I've kind of like progressed from being in Minneapolis where like it's a city and it has great recreational opportunities, but it wasn't maybe filling up my cup. Um, I also spent my summers in Lutzen, Minnesota, which is on the North shore, really close to Canada for much of my childhood. And so I grew up like in the woods in the summers. And so I loved being on trails and I like progressively realized like, oh, in the UP and Michigan trails and trail running and ski trails that go through the woods are incredible. And then I spent some summers in Bozeman and I learned about the mountains and I was like, oh, I love the mountains. And then I moved to Alaska and like basically found paradise. And it was one of those things where you're like, whoa, like I just want to be out there. And so training, like I'd say one of my weaknesses actually is like not focusing on skiing enough when I was um, like training super intensely for skiing because I didn't enjoy roller skiing as much as running. And so, you know, just like I never found an issue like finding the motivation to train. I do find issue or I struggle sometimes with like racing and pressure and performance. And then also like resting is probably my biggest weakness, especially like I love winter and in the winter, I want to be outside doing stuff. And uh, that doesn't really make you fast on the weekend if you are trying to like go ski with your friends every evening because it's pretty outside. <laughs> so I know it's been like a, I've had different struggles maybe than like the typical, like getting out of bed, that's, that's not really my issue at all. Maybe getting into the season a little bit um, and kind of, I think we'll kind of like start with the season and then maybe zoom out and work backwards a little bit, but um, you know, in just in terms of kind of setting up for this transition that you're kind of starting to wrap your head around and just, you know, this, any Olympic year is going to be kind of a big year, but there's, there are a lot of layers for the last couple years um, for everybody, you know, regardless of what level you're at. But, um, you know, you came out of the season as the Super Tour overall winner. And, um, you know, I think heading into the year, I don't know whether you came out and said it or not, but I know that, you know, the Olympic team was probably a big goal for the season, um, which you did not did not achieve, um, despite some really strong racing, really consistent racing throughout the season. And I think, setting up for that like u.s nationals is probably one of the peak event series through that super tour that happened in soldier hollow the early season super tours were all low altitude anchorage is low altitude so i want to kind of start maybe with like your pre-camp in uh in new mexico so you were looking to find altitude um how did you <laughs> land on new mexico and can you talk through just what that was like yeah totally so this is going to like highlight, I think a lot of kind of what I touched on before where, um, skiing is, so this past year was like probably the most focused I've been on skiing in a maybe ever, or at least since college, um, because of that Olympic team and that goal. And so, um, 
I kind of like in 2020, I was supposed to kind of step away from skiing and go on this epic six month trip through South America. And then when that fell apart due to COVID, it was like, well, should I keep racing? And all through 2020 and 2021 season, it was like, yeah, this makes sense. And then coming into last year, it was like, well, you know, it's an Olympic year. Like I'm going to try to make the Olympic team. And like, I had some teammates around me who were like, you should try, like, you, you know, like don't count yourself out. Um, and so it was like, I focused a lot last year on like roller skiing more, which still less than most, but like, I, you know, tried to get better at speed and at, at sprinting and stuff that I really just don't really enjoy that much. And so I had some strong results in the early season in like Duluth in a 5k, for example, and like sprinting and cable in Duluth. And so going into soldier hollow, I was like, I actually have a chance. I need to like be in a good place. And I actually love altitude and I love soldier hollow. So um, I kind of knew that I'm an altitude person, so that's not a big deal, but you do have to, like, it is really rough to go straight from sea level, like an anchorage to go to soldier hollow, especially if it's going to be cold, slow snow. And like, you know, it, it, you need to like prepare. And so I really wanted to spend Christmas with my boyfriend. Um, and we didn't really want to be in anchorage because of kind of COVID concerns. Um, last year I got COVID right after Christmas. And so I didn't want to have to do all the family stuff, just, you know, to make sure that I was in a good place for nationals. And so we were like, well, where will we go? And he hates winter. And so he was like, let's go somewhere warm. And I was like, well, there has to be skiing. Um, and so we kind of settled on New Mexico and like specifically Taos area um, because Red River was right there. And I thought there'd be skiing. Um, and then there wasn't, they had like a really weird year. And I literally brought roller skis and tried to roller ski on the highway, which didn't work. Um, and then uh, Red River had gotten hit by a windstorm that like knocked down every tree. Like it, we, we went up there cause I was like, maybe it will work. And it was crazy. Like, I mean, I feel terrible for their community. It was like really devastating, but um, yeah, there was no skiing. So it was one of those things where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm at the place where like it's make or break it next week. And I messed up um, by coming here, which in retrospect, I didn't, but at the time it was really hard to see that. And it was really stressful. Like I definitely was not doing super great at managing the stress of racing, especially because nationals, like the way the Olympic qualifying criteria was like, you had to win nationals if you were on the domestic side um, to have a chance. And so it was like, well, this is make or break it. And then luckily I actually like, we were living in an Airstream trailer uh, that was an Airbnb and it was like a great experience and Taos is really cool, but I was like emailing everyone I could to try to find snow. And the, one of the guys from um, the Southwest Nordic club, uh, Clay Mosley replied back and was like, I will go groom trails in Pajarito, which is like two and a half, two hours South of Taos. If you want to drive down. And I was like, Oh, we're doing this. And so I, we drove down to Pajarito and Clay and their like small club there had groomed the trails. And I mean, it was rock ski conditions, like major, major rock skis, but it was amazing. Cause I see like a community that like, isn't even my community, like do some, I mean, like make it work. And then like, we actually drove down there one day. And then the next day we did the same drive on our way to Albuquerque to fly out. And so I got to ski like two days of the, like, I don't know, six day trip, which it was skiing at like 10,000 feet. And of course I'm like, okay, I'm going to do intervals because I have to do intervals. And it was a little bit brutal. <laughs> like, honestly, they were harder than probably the races at nationals, but um, it was like, I don't know. It, it was definitely, it was one of those things where you're trying to make 
trying to find the compromise between what makes sense for like the relationships in your life and then also skiing and where that priority needs to lie. And like that has been something that I've um, had to juggle for a while in my ski career. And even when I was younger, like my parents are not into endurance sport and they're not into skiing. And so it wasn't like, oh, can you guys take me to the ski race? It was like, oh, can I go to the ski race? And they're like, well, how much does it cost? And then they'd be like, well, can you go with a friend? And so it was definitely like, I don't know, nationals or sorry, uh, Christmas was hard. It wasn't maybe the best Christmas. But then again, um, when I showed up to Soldier Hollow, I forgot that like, even though there wasn't snow, I was still living at like 7,000 feet. And I was really well prepared for nationals. And frankly, a break from skiing was probably what my body needed. Um, and so nationals, you know, went as well as it could have from a preparation standpoint, for sure. And so it was, yeah. I overthought it a little bit, but awesome. Yeah. Clay, he's, it's kind of amazing. He's created like what you probably got to see, but a junior program that is like thriving yeah. is the only program in New Mexico and, he drives, and you know, crazy. has to drive to Colorado for like any of their competitions and stuff, but it's really cool yeah, to see just like that. 10 hours. Yeah. I was just like, so impressed with their whole program. Like I, yeah, I was, I was like, just, this is great. And honestly, the trails were really cool. I, I wish there yeah. was a little more snow, but it was like Los Alamos and I had never been there. Like, it was really fantastic. I, I do want to go down to New Mexico and ski on all those trails, hopefully someday again. <laughs> and looking at, you know, how things shook out once you were in Soldier Hollow and, and some of those races. So 20K skate, I think was probably, you know, you came in second um, and Rosie Brennan, kind of like ran away from the beginning, right? Was gone yeah. and it would just, you know, just race her own race. And it was, I think like probably pretty telling for what kind of shape she was going to be in coming into the Olympics. Um, oh, yeah. But then there were some really, you know, like for those other positions, right? Because uh, there, there are several of you guys that were just like in that spot where it could, kind of was anybody's game. And as you said, nationals like really mattered this year so yeah talk through some of those races and you know what went well what was challenging and just kind of how you were feeling coming out of that yeah definitely um so nationals started off with like the skate sprint and I actually won the qualifier which is so crazy like that might be my greatest athletic achievement ever because I am not I don't think I would have been able to pull that off a year ago and granted it was a long qualifier at altitude and it was slow, cold snow. So like things played into my strengths, but at the same time, it was like, oh, wow. Like you're actually like skiing. Okay. Um, and that was really cool. Like it was a really, I didn't necessarily care about the sprint because I thought I would make, try to make the Olympic team on distance. Um, but it still was like a really, it was fun and it was exciting. And then I was in this, um, in the, what do you call it? The final. And like, I made it, I ended up sixth, I believe, but like, just to like, I, there wasn't a sprint this year, I think, that I didn't make a final except for the classic one at nationals. And so, you know, talking about consistency in racing, like it was, that is something that I've never pulled off before. And it's probably why I had the super tour overall at the end, because it was like, wow, this is like a different kind of athlete. Um, but then my focus the whole year was that 20K at nationals. And I didn't know Rosie was going to be there till like, you know, a couple of weeks before, because obviously she's my teammate. So we did talk. Um, but it was really like, I really wanted to win a national championship because I've never done that. And so when I knew Rosie was going to be there, I was like, well, that's probably really extraordinarily unlikely, but you know, might as well try, um, skating to my strength, 
shoulder hollow is a strength, altitude, um, and 20K as opposed to like a 10K. And so I tried to go with Rosie for like maybe a half a kilometer or like a fourth of a kilometer and literally was like, this, I can't keep this up for like 1K. Like this is impossible. And so um, kind of skied with then Caitlin Patterson and a group of girls for the like next two laps of the, so 10K of it. And, um, or maybe whatever, some half of the race. Um, and then was kind of just playing cat and mouse with Caitlin Patterson, which is something we've done many times in um, different races throughout the our careers. And so we know each other's strengths super well. And I knew it was a downhill finish, um, which is also something I raced in Silver Hollow at NCAAs in 2014. And I really wanted to win NCAAs. And I was kind of out sprinted slash out downhilled by the girl who ended up winning from New Mexico um, because we ended on her modes downhill into the like same finish that was this. And I knew if I'm not pretty ahead at the top of the hill, I don't stand a chance. Like Caitlin has quite good skis. She's good at downhills. And also just like, it, I mean, you get tired at the end of a 20 K. And so I ended up going on the final lap and it was one of those things, which like is one of the reasons I do sport because it was totally like, I have no idea if I can hold this. I am going like absolute max. And you can't even think about how far you have to go because you're just trying to focus on like pushing through like this wall that's being built very quickly. And um, I remember seeing Eric Flora on like one of the little uphills on the sprint course that, so I was probably like 2K to the end and he was just like screaming, just go, go, go. And he's my coach. And I remember being like, oh my God, like this is it. And it was cool because like, I actually was able to somewhat process what was happening while I was doing it. And yeah, I was going to get second. It wasn't like I was going to win, but to me, I, I took Rosie out of the equation at that point. So it was like, it was a really, really big, like accomplished goal to get second in that race. And I did hold off Caitlin. Um, I remember like falling over at the end of the finish line and just being like totally like tanked and knowing that I had not gotten out sprinted. And it was really like almost coming full circle in my career from like multiple finishes at soldier hollow and sometimes being on the opposite end of that. And so that was like incredible. Um, and then nationals kind of took a torn turn for the worse with the weather too. So it started raining and it switched to clister skiing compared to like colder snow. And I just typically am not as strong of a classic skier and definitely not as strong of a clister classic skier. And so then in the 10 K I just had like, honestly, a pretty bad race. Um, I, we didn't have the greatest skis, which not as an excuse, just like made it even harder because you just felt like you're struggling the whole time. Um, and then finish. And I, I think I was 10th. I actually don't even know the result because I literally was like, so disappointed that I just kind of like moved on. <laughs> um, it was like, cause the problem was, is that or not problem, but we still had sun, uh, sun Valley the next weekend. And like, because of the way the points were working, which I don't normally calculate points, but I had a teammate who actually very kindly told me like, you're not out of it. Just like, keep focused. Like, don't think of it as like a major setback. Just like you're still in it. This still could work out, like go and do well in Sun Valley. And so, um, we then went to Sun Valley right from nationals. And that's where I was like, okay, now it's like nationals round two, where like, it matters so much. And we had some of the girls back who had been on the world cup all year and, so I was like, okay, where can you stack up against them? And that's probably going to be part of this whole decision for the Olympics. And it was like, it was really stressful. It was not maybe very enjoyable. Um, Sun Valley was great. The skiing was incredible. 
I was rooming with Becca and Scott and it was like, we had fun, but it was just like, it was a lot. Um, and so we had a 5k skate and a 10k classic. And I was like, those are both not my strengths, but whatever. And in the 5k skate, I was going out and about a K and a half in, I subluxed my shoulder, which is something I've done multiple times. And it just, it pops out of its socket and then you can pop it back in, but it like, didn't go back in. I had to stop on the side of the trail and like ask this volunteer to like try to help. But then I also knew that if someone touched you, you like get DQ'd or like, I don't know when you're racing a 5k and you're like a lot of thoughts are going through your head. So I thought he couldn't touch me anyway. I ended up like hitting it and shoving the shoulder back in, but then like I had stopped and I was like, well, this is a waste of a race now. And now, you know, like trying to like continue racing after that was just like, it was like brutal. Um, but anyway, I got to the finish line and the shoulder stayed in. I only, I had to V2 most of the course then because I couldn't V1 with the shoulder, which like actually was probably good. It made it probably faster maybe. But um, I remember sitting on a bench right at the finish line, just being like emotionally, like I, I like drained. Like you're just like, I don't. And I, I mean, sure. Part of it, I think is my body was like freaking out because it had just done the dislocation thing and then was like, had race on it. And anyway, then, um, I still had one more race that I had to do if I wanted to try to make a bid at the Olympics. So I taped it up. I talked to a PT and then I went into the classic race the next day and it actually was fine. I mean, it stayed in and it hurt a lot, a lot, but like it, it was kind of like, this is the last chance. Um, and striding wasn't that bad. So I would just stride as much as I could and try not to double pull. And then I was so terrified of falling on any downhill. Cause I was worried if I crashed, it would like just totally like rip it out and I need surgery or something. And so, um, also like, I don't have health insurance in the lower 48. So I really didn't want to have to go to the hospital, which is like a whole nother thing of the element. But, um, yeah, so it was, I finished fourth in that and it was fine. I mean, it was like a good finish for the situation and I was proud of towing the line and stuff, but it was kind of like, after all of that in January, I was empty. And so, um, then it was like, how do you turn the season around and how do you continue wanting to do this? <laughs> so after Sun Valley, that's when Olympic selection happens. Um, you were still named as an alternate. And yep. in, um, in 2018, there was a significantly larger quota. And there are 11 women named to the team this year. There's only eight spots. Can you talk about just like how that aspect of things factored in? Like I'm, you know, I'm still if this was 2018, I would have made it again. And then also just how you kind of reset from that. Like, as you're saying, um, you know, you're not named to the team. You just had a pretty rough stretch. Like, how did you end up kind of reframing and, and yeah. getting back? Yeah. So in 2018, there was, yeah, like 11 women named. And for me, it was two total different situations where in 2018, I was literally shocked when I got the call that I made the Olympic team because I I had never really made it a realistic goal. Like it was funny in 2017 season, I was coming back from anemia and I just like, I don't know, it, 2018 was one of those things where like magic happened and things just clicked at the right moment. And I uh, kind of got lucky and nationals were in Anchorage and I had like this classic race, which at the time seemed very unlikely um, and just like started racing really well and kind of made a jump right when I needed to, to make that team. And then of course, the Olympic experience was an interesting one because um, I didn't think I was going to race until the day before I was told, I was like, Oh, you have this spot. And so it was a, 
I wouldn't say it was like the Olympics were all that they were like uh, what I thought they'd be like, but it was um, an experience regardless. Um, and it was really cool to race. I really like that was the pinnacle of that whole experience was getting to race in the Olympics. Um, and so 2020, I knew what I, or sorry, 2022, I knew what I was going into and it was like so much more real and so much more pressure. Um, and then also like, I think with a little bit with age and having already been on an Olympic team, there was like this idea of like, well, if you don't make it, you're going backwards. And that, you know, is difficult. And even though there were only eight spots, it still didn't feel like there was like, I don't know, it's like, it wasn't like, well, I'm still like number 10 at the very least by being named as an alternate, um, which is the same as Pyeongchang. So like, I haven't slipped backwards, but it, it doesn't work in your head that way. And also it doesn't work in the like media or the, you know, just ski community that way. And so that was like something that was not really, you know, I never thought like, oh, well, you kind of stayed the same. Um, it just was more like disappointment. Um, and then also, I think there was a little bit of disappointment because Beijing was at altitude. It was really slow snow. It was a 30K skate as opposed to a 30K classic, which Pyeongchang was. And it was a Clister 32 classic, 30K classic. And so there was like actually just the desire to go and like do that race um, or do a race, you know, one of the races there where it like really suits me. It's really grindy and stuff. And so I think that was a disappointment because it was like, well, if you could go, you probably could do pretty well. And like, as the US women showed, like they did do well. Um, you know, it's like one of those things where there's a lot of people on a certain level. And unfortunately, there's only four spots in a race. And I get that. Um, so then after Sun Valley, I didn't actually get told I didn't make the team till like, I don't know, uh, maybe a week after, which I kind of expected. Um, but I went to Park City with Becca Rorva and Rosie had hooked us up with one of her family friends' houses who they weren't there. And we like lived in this Park City, honestly, kind of mansion on the hillside for like two weeks or a week and a half. And it was great. And it was also really challenging. Um, we were like very isolated and also we're terrified about COVID still. So like we just hermited um, in our own rooms. For, Becca was sick for a while too. And I was like, could kind of ski, but my arm was really messed up. And we were like not in great places. Um, the good news is that it was like almost like cathartic to just like hit that like lower spot and then just have to like be in it and not be able to escape it or distract from it and just like process. And, you know, it also kind of made me realize like, I don't know, like the thing I always do when I get into a bad place of skiing is I start leaning into my other identities. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start working. I'm going to start planning my life. I'm going to start planning this. And so I did have a little bit of that going, which sometimes I think is unhealthy to just do as a distraction, but it was a good opportunity to do it. And I also felt like we, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be hundred percent honest. We bought some bottles of wine. We watched a lot of Netflix. We watched Bridgerton, Emily in Paris, and we would like train in the day. And then I would work in the afternoon. And then in the evening, we would just literally like drink wine and watch Netflix. And it was really good. Like it was really bonding for us as our friendship. And then also like to kind of be like, okay, zoom out a little bit. We've been in this pressure cooker. Um, and then we ended up, we were flying right to the East coast. So we still had two weeks of racing and I knew that I had super tour overall. And I was like, you can either get the world cup starts for period four, if you race well, or like, but you got to be there and race well. And that was, uh, like, I don't know. It was kind of curious. Cause you're like, I know I'm in really good shape, but 
am I in the right headspace to like go there? And, um, and I, you know, was able to do that. And so, um, so it was good to like go and, I don't know, have a down period and then be able to like rally for the East. Yeah. And, and then looking at those races, so I think there was like a huge snowstorm, right. Coming into Lake Placid. Yeah. Yeah. So did that, you know, in terms of just like thinking about some of your strengths and things that you're talking about, like not being like not being a strong at cluster skiing and things like that, the Craftsbury races were more skewed towards classic. Um, But just, you know, in terms of being able to reset and reframe and maybe have races that you feel like you're a little more set up for, like, did that help kind of like move past it too? Totally. It totally did. Like it, um, I'd never been to that part of Lake Placid. I had skied at like a different place, like the ski jumps or something. Um, And those races or those trails are incredible. I was, I mean, it, I was so impressed with Lake Placid or Van Hovenberg. Like it was, it was funny because what happened in Utah was I shifted from being like, now this is all about racing to like, now you're going to enjoy the rest of the season. And so I would go on long skis on the trails that were like the Olympic trails from, um, 1980 and then like the races were great and I there was a 10k skate that was really cold and I went for it from the gun and then got out sprinted by Elena and it was it was almost like at the time I was a little disappointed obviously but it was more like a disappointment from losing out on like the extra money you get for winning than like losing out on like a spot or an Olympic team thing so it was good to have that shift and then like like I said yeah the courses um I mean, even Crossberry is like decently grindy and Oli was great to, or Ollie was great to use the, um, like the grindier course. Um, but I felt really prepared, like coming from altitude, I'd say maybe my sprinting suffers a little bit, but it snowed a ton in Crossberry during the sprint. The Lake Placid sprint was super cold. So it was really slow. And so like my sprinting stayed like, okay. Um, and then I had like really good fitness from being at altitude for so long. So that was the races went really well, like looking back on actual results. And I will say like, it went also to, to a place where like, maybe not racing at your 110% and racing more at your hundred percent, which honestly I needed at that point. Like it was like, I can't, I'm not inherently super competitive with others. I'm like really competitive with myself in my head, but like, I don't like towing the line. That's why I don't like sprinting. Like I don't like being with people who you like have to beat them or it's, really aggressive. And so to go and race more in a like, well, I'm out here like going hard kind of thing, not I have to win to do this thing and get to the Olympics. Like that was a great shift and something that I like tried to like channel. And then I also knew I was going home to Anchorage after for a couple of weeks or actually it was like 10 days, but to know that I was going to go home was also a kind of a like, okay, like you're going to get through this and then you're going to go to Anchorage and it's going to be really nice. And so that was like a good way to frame it as well. So you went from the Northeast to Anchorage back to Minnesota for, or Wisconsin yeah. for the rookie. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was like crazy. <laughs> I guess it's not that much different than times when maybe you're flying like back and forth to Europe or something like that. But, and with the Berkey, so you got third at the Berkey and um, in talking about that, I think you mentioned that you kind of wish you, just like went for it earlier. Can you talk a little bit about just how the Berkey went? And then did you already know at that point um, that you had World Cup starts? And did you choose to do the Berkey over one of those World Cup starts? Or or just how did that kind of 
timeline work. Totally. I, um, so I knew I had world cup starts after the East. Cause like no one could pass me in the standings, even though the Berkey was part of that period. Um, and I knew that the Berkey overlapped with Lottie, I believe. And Lottie was like a 10 can of sprint. And I was like, no, I, I am going to go to the Berkey instead. There's a lot more money on the line at the Berkey. And also like, I love the Berkey. I think it's a really cool experience for any Nordic skier to do if they, you know, from recreational up. Um, and so uh, went to the Berkey. We had like the most fantastic Berkey conditions I've ever skied in. Um, and the snow was perfect and it was cold. It was actually too cold. I froze for like the first, I don't know, half of it, which played into being really timid about wanting to break away because I honestly thought I was going to bonk because I was so, my water bottle froze. I only drank like twice. And then I was really underdressed, which I'm someone who gets cold really easily. And I, I usually then bonk like at the end of a long marathon, if I, if I'm cold for the first half. And so, um, we had a super strong group of girls. We had some foreigners. We had Caitlin, Elena, uh, Sadie was there. And I mean, Sadie is such a sensational skier. Like I love skiing things with her. Um, and then Jess Yaten, and then like, of course, like the whole super tour kind of crew. And so, um, we had like a pretty strong lead pack that was like switching off, but Jess really wanted to break away. And I kind of wanted to break away too, just from like the way we ski. Um, and so we really were trying to make moves and I honestly just didn't have the confidence to like really go for it. And I think she kind of did, but we really would have needed to break away together. Um, just cause the draft, like in the second half of the Berkey race, like it's so, there's so much draft on downhills. Cause it's kind of like you're going down from 12 K to the end. And, um, and looking back, I wish I would have just tried, but I was too scared. And so then at, when I did try, it was way too late. And like, by the time we got to the lake, it was me and Caitlin and Elena. And it was like, well, this is going to be really interesting because I'm against two good sprinters and I'm not really that great a sprinter. And by then I really had like stopped caring about sprinting in any way. I don't know. I had retired from sprinting in Crassbury, which I actually have not done a sprint since. So I'm sticking to that. But um. Yeah. So I was very like, oh no. So I tried a couple of things and surges, but like when we turned onto main street, those two just went and it was like, it just was like, I was standing still and it wasn't even like a tiredness thing. It's like just a movement pattern thing. And so, um, so anyway, I got third, which was a little unfortunate, but it also like, I had so much fun. And at that point I was really trying to seek out those kind of experiences. And so that was kind of like the highlight of you know, like I enjoyed it so much. And so then went to the world cup and did home and cold the next weekend. And like the difference between home and cold and the Berkey were very vast, but it was really like, uh, the Berkey was fantastic. Like I, I'm excited to go again this year. Like it's, I love the Berkey. Yeah. And then after, and maybe this kind of fits in with like the idea of just like focusing a little more on like the experience of things versus like I need to win this to win the Olympics, but I know, you know, World Cup finals were canceled and you and several other APU teammates, plus maybe a couple other people, um, stayed over for the, the Norwegian Berkey. And yeah, was that, yeah. that was your first time racing that race, oh, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> which is a whole other kind of wild scene. Um, oh, yeah. and it was wild. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about that? And then one of the things I'm kind of curious about is, like you need to carry a certain amount of weight, right? Yeah. With the, in yeah. your pack. Kilos. Yeah. Or yeah. 3.5 kilos. Yeah. yeah. 
so yeah, we, um, Rosie Brennan was like, Hey, world cup finals are canceled. Our tickets back weren't till like, I was going to fly straight to Whistler. So it wasn't till like Monday or whatever. And, um, and she's like, do you want to try to do the Norwegian Burke? And I was like, uh, it's a classic 54 K. And then I was like, you know, why not? You know, like, when are you going to get this chance? And then, so Rosie, like, it was, I mean, hats off to her teammate, winning teammate, but, um, she like emailed all these pro teams. Cause the difference between like the races in Europe marathoning and the U S is that there's actually pro teams that like follow the circuit. And so she got us where there was this protein that would help support us, um, with like waxing and then also lodging the whole week before in Sushin. And I'd never been there. And so me, Scott and Rosie, like joined team Trentino, it's called who are so fun, loved them. Oh my gosh. Like Italian pro marathon team. I was like, I just want to live your guys' life. Um, minus all the double pulling, but it was very, like, it was super fun. Um, and so they like helped us get backpacks that you have to carry this 3.5 kilos in. And you also have to carry like a jacket, pants, hat, mittens. Like there's all these things you have to carry. And it's crazy. Like they barely fit in our backpacks. And so we stuffed all the clothes in and then you had to go, we went and bought a weight set from like, uh, like in Lillehammer, just a, like an exercise store. And we put literal like kilo weights in our backpacks. And it's funny because at first you're like, oh, like, I think my backpack, it was eight pounds, a little over. Cause I was worried, I ended up not drinking at all, but you have to we put water in it too. And I was like, oh, this isn't that heavy. Oh my gosh. It is so heavy when you're like at K, even K 12 and you're going up a hill. Like I, oh my gosh, it was, well, one, it was really, really hard on my shoulder, which looking back, I'm like, that was maybe interesting decision, but two, it was, um, I was so sore after the Berkey in places I've never been sore. And it was just like my back, my, like every weird part of your body because of that extra weight, which like, especially when you're my size, that was like a significant portion of my body weight. And so it was really like, oh my gosh. Um, but I know some people use like sugar, like there was all, everyone had a different strategy, but you did want it to be like as condensed as possible. Cause like it doesn't sway back and forth on your back. And like, I did get chafing. We all did even through our clothes, but like, it was really, I mean, it was kind of crazy to have to do that. And then of course, like all these marathon teams have their like really secret systems of doing it. And they're all giving us tips. And it was like, I mean, it was so cool. We were sitting in the hotel in arena, arena where it starts uh, the night before the Berkey. And we were watching the train station and like the train was arriving like every half an hour. And it was just tons of people getting off with their ski bags and like a backpack. Cause essentially they were just going to ski to Lillehammer and then like take the train home to Oslo. And I, I mean, it felt like magical. It was like, this is the center of ski culture. And people were like waxing in the parking lot at like 10 at night. Like it was just so cool. And I mean, that was one of those things where I'm like, that was probably the highlight of that trip to Europe. Um, this past, you know, like the three weeks I was there. And like, I just, when you're part of that, you're like, wow, this is a really cool sport. Like all the stress about the Olympics, all the stress about like world cup or whatever to see this, you're like, no, this is what it's about. And then during the race, you're skiing with these like women. They, my whole group was double pullers, which blew my mind, but they afterwards were so like supportive and so curious about like where you're from and just talking about the race and saying, wow, you're really strong here and you were strong here. And it's like, that's like, it was such a cool experience. And it really, 
it made me like, I mean, it was great because it really changed my perspective on like some of the harder parts of the season and made me really excited, like to just stay in the community, which was helpful with like trying to figure out what I was going to do this year. So. And maybe we'll kind of transition there in terms of you, you wrote a season recap for some of your supporters. And in that you, you talked a lot about, and you talked about here too, just kind of some cumulative fatigue and just like the, the wear of that pressure and exhaustion um, coming out of the season. And, you know, like there's all the layers of COVID um, and that's been late kind of a factor in the last couple seasons where, you know, like, especially that 2020, 2021 season, it's like, it kind of wasn't a season if you were a domestic racer. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, Olympic, Olympic selection. So in terms of where you are at in thinking about like what's ahead for you and, and what are your priorities and goals going to be, can you talk about just where, where your mind is right now and, and just what kind of coming to that decision has looked like? Yeah, definitely. So I always kind of knew, like I had mentioned I, in 2020, I was going to like step away and do um, like some more running marathons and like trail running things. Um, I do like a lot of the mountain running races in Alaska. I've always been curious about longer trail running since I'm more of like a distance skier, probably distance runnery, um, like in the mountains though, not like on the roads. And so I've always wanted to like, I've done a couple trail marathons, um, and done pretty well, although they've been small, but like, you know, I wanted to explore that. And then also like, you know, a big factor has been like, so my boyfriend Lex Trinan was a big, was high level ski racer. And then in 2017 fall, 2016, excuse me, he, um, I don't got chronic fatigue syndrome or some kind of thing that has now led to where like, he still doesn't exercise um, and can't really exercise. He gets like the flu um, if he exercises. And so it's been a really big like lifestyle um, adjustment to try to like do things together, um, especially when I'm trying to like fit in, honestly, what feels like a full-time job most of the time with my work. Um, And then also like ski racing and ski training and that. And so um, I basically promised him that after 2022, it was going to be a shift and we were going to do something different. And he's wanted to leave Alaska for a while. He grew up here and I love Alaska. Um, I don't really necessarily want to leave, but I also think that it's healthy to do big changes in your lives once in a while. And I also have always wanted to live in the West um, because it's sunny and it's nice and it's not dark all winter or frankly, it's not light all summer, which drives me crazy. But um, so I, we've talked it over for, you know, the last year and a half probably, and we're going to move down to lower 48 in August. And so, um, right now, Durango, Colorado is the top spot. Um, we're looking for jobs and, you know, housing and all of those things, but that makes sense for what he wants, which is desert and what I want, which is winter. And so that's kind of where we're landing on. But, um, my plan is to still split time between Alaska and Colorado, depending on work and hopefully maybe having a remote nonprofit job. I'm, I'm on the, the job search right now. Um, but it has been, I mean, it's been interesting. It's been a little bit like bittersweet where I don't really want to leave, but I do think that there needs to be some shift. And then in, what that means for skiing is that right now I have period one world cup starts and I didn't anticipate having that. Um, till later in the season, I realized I'm probably going to keep these. And I've talked it over like Eric, our APU coach here. And 
decided that I probably will take those and train for skiing through the summer and fall. Um, because I really want to do the marathons, like a lot of marathons this winter too. So we were looking at like, well, what makes sense? And I think honestly, the Norwegian Berkey, and then just having, like, I did do period one in 2019 and the courses there suit me. This new equal distance racing thing is really fantastic for distance women's gears. Um, and so, you know, looking at the races and being like, oh, this actually would probably play into your strengths, but also shifting what I'm focusing on in skiing. So I'm doing a 50K running race in August in Washington. I'm doing Pikes Peak Ascent in September. And then some of the Alaska, like Mount Marathon, Cirque Series, some of the Alaskan running races. And so, you know, I've been trying to train for running a little bit more, especially like with that 50K out there to just see if I like it and try it and um, see if that's a direction I want to move into and do competitive running. I also, like I said, I'm not sure if I want to be doing any competition at like in the long run. Like, I don't think I, this is a five-year thing. I think it would be, you know, a couple of years. Um, but we do plan to move back to Alaska within the next three to five years. So that's part of it. Um, and it's just been like, I mean, it's been actually challenging to figure out that identity of I'm not retired. I'm not even not training less per se. Like I'm still training more than a lot of people. But like shifting it where like I'm trying to do more of the things I enjoy and less of the things I don't. And then knowing that like the few months before the World Cup season, once those running races are done, I will actually focus on skiing quite a bit to be ready for the World Cup and then the marathons of the U.S. after. And is World Championships on the radar at all or is it more focusing on? I mean, yeah, I wouldn't say so unless I go to the World Cup and like blow myself away. But I actually don't even know where they are or when they are. I assume they're in February. They're usually in February. I haven't like, that's one thing that I have really, well, so I'm working basically full time as deputy director of a nonprofit here this summer. And we're, we don't have any executive director. We're going through a transition leadership wise. And it is, it is a just totally challenging role that I'm learning a lot in and I am working so many hours that I haven't had a lot of time outside of just trying to train and like do some of the skiing like paperwork or busy work that I need to do to like really plan out the season and so that's one of my things like to do before we leave in August is to like actually figure out what I want to do and like what that would look at like but um I don't into I'm not going to go for world champs if that makes sense you know I won't be I don't plan on doing super tours that are not in any cool places um, or places that I haven't been. Um, not that any places are not cool, but like, I don't anticipate going to Houghton, for example. I really think that I will do the World Cup and give it my 110% for that period. And then I will be looking for all the fun experiences, um, money-making maybe, and also like just races that like suit my strengths a little bit better than the standard super tour schedule. And also, you know, thinking about being a bubble athlete, you know, and thinking back on your career and, and things like that, it seems like a kind of a challenging place to be for a number of reasons. And, you know, on one hand, like you're among the best athletes in the country in your sport, but there's also, you know, you've talked a lot about you've been working through your entire career or you've been going to school. 
And you also can't necessarily, like even in a normal year, when you are completely focused on skiing, you can't necessarily just plan out your season ahead of time because you don't know what starts you're going to get. It depends on other races. And then there's maybe because of that, there's pressure to perform in certain races and whether that's, you know, U.S. nationals domestically or whether it's like, okay, I've got this World Cup start and I want to stay on the World Cup. So I need to do really well at, you know, these these events. Can you talk about just what that experience has been like for you and, and just navigating them? Yeah, definitely. Um, you hit it on the nose. Like it is, I mean, being a bubble athlete is only my own fault. Like it's like, you know, I'm in control of if I'm skiing faster, but I will say it has been challenging. I'm super lucky because I've been part of this generation that has gotten World Cup starts, um, regardless of like being on the US ski team. And so with like the discretionary committee, you know, I've had a lot of opportunities that say Chelsea Holmes, for example, like the generation before me didn't get. And so I do recognize that I've had opportunity. Having opportunity isn't great if financially it is such a strain that it is really hard to do. And I didn't realize how, I mean, I've known how hard it is based on like my savings account, but I haven't this year when I went to period four, I was funded by like, I was the COC leader and it is a totally different experience when the races are like, it's not, you're dropping, you know, $2,000 or whatever the crazy amount is each week to be there. It's just way less, not pressure even, but like, it's more enjoyable. And I mean, that comes from someone too, who's working for their own money. And I used to do these horrible calculations of like how many hours of work it would take me to pay for one day on the world cup. And it was quite bad. Um, and so I think that like, it's been really hard. Um, granted I'm 30 years old and I've been at APU since I was 22. So like eight years of kind of that bubble. Um, although I wasn't really on the bubble earlier, but like paying for things. Um, I definitely think NCAA helped set me up for that because I needed one to have a degree to get the jobs I have. And then two, I really needed to actually have that structure of funding um, early to progress to being able to get faster. But since then, I mean, yeah, working like, I mean, it's not working just to pay the ski costs. Like you have to pay rent, you have to pay car insurance, you have to buy a car. Like I lived in Alaska for three years without a car because I was saving up money. And then it's like, okay, do I go to this ski race or do I buy a car? And it it just is like one of those difficult things. Um, that being said, it's also a privileged decision to be making that you're going to a ski race. So I'm not, I mean, I, do, I really hope I don't sound like I'm, woe is me when I know the state of the world right now. But I think that the work the NNF has done, um, the work that like some of these like outside organizations are doing, Women's Sports Foundation, um, if you can do I or USOC funding, like once in a while, there's grants available. If you've gone to like a world champs, for example, like those have been instrumental in bridging some of the costs for me. Um, and then I've never been great at finding sponsors per se, large ones because of, well, it's like when you're working, you spend all your time working and you don't necessarily have as much time for doing the hustling. And so it's a, it's a trade-off. Um, also Alaska is so saturated with top level athletes that when they can get a, a, you know, two-time Olympian, are they going to look at someone who hasn't gone to the Olympics and maybe not? Um, but that being said, I do think that, you know, bubble athleteness is something to like, see the, the see the positive things out of the struggles. Like in my job nowadays, I mean, I, 
I have to troubleshoot many similar things of like harsh realities, like, okay, you're not going to pay for this. So you're going to not go here. Or I don't know, it's just like learning how life is and life isn't always roses. But I think for a lot of younger athletes, they don't know that because they, a lot of them have a lot of parental support is what I've noticed, which is great. And I'm not, you know, saying that's a bad thing, but it does make me wonder how much they're learning because I will have learned a lot from skiing, even if it's been hard times sometimes. <laughs> You've spent the last eight years with APU and thinking about just why that program has been a good fit for you. Can you talk about just, you know, what initially drew you in and, and brought you to APU versus some of the other elite teams? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I like, <laughs> I would, I really, when I, at the last year at NMU, I was like in between, I wanted to go to the mountains. And at the time it was like Sun Valley or APU. And I went to spring series in 2014 and in Alaska. And it was like a beautiful week in March. I learned that's not how it is all the time, but um, I was just like blown away by Alaska. And I literally was like, oh my gosh, like I would kill to live here. And it's funny, I like didn't follow ski racing enough to know too much about Keegan. Like I knew she was like really fast, but I didn't know like how good AP was. And so I asked like Tyler Cornfield, who was a friend of mine, like, oh, can I like, how do you join the team? And he's like, you got to talk to Eric Flora. And Eric called me like the week later and was like, how many hours a year do you train? And then like basically said, if you can be up here in a week, you can be on the team. And I was just like, uh, okay. So I like literally bought a plane ticket to Alaska and flew up here and lived at the ski house and started a master's degree in order to live there and all these different factors. But I mean, what really drew me was outside of the beauty of Alaska was like this idea of a really strong team and a team environment. Cause I knew that from NMU, I needed that. And I really liked that. And, um, and I knew that was, that existed up here. And then on top of that, like, I didn't realize how great of a coach Eric was, but for especially somebody who had not been a standout junior and who had like a lot of skiing things to work on. Um, I'm so glad I came because he boils it down to such a simple like recipe and that worked really well for me. And we've been through like ups and downs. I'm not, I had some setbacks, a lot of them like health things that, you know, like anemia and for example, getting COVID in 2021 and some things that like we disagreed on the approach back to sport, but I will say like his, I mean, his support and, and the way he coaches and the way he fosters a team environment of like working really, really hard that like has kept me here. And then teammates are just, I've had really fantastic teammates. <laughs> and with that, like with kind of how Flora is able to kind of you know, adapt to different, you know, whether it's like working together to make a decision or um, it seems like something that kind of has stood out to me about the APU team is it seems like there's a lot of different versions of kind of like the pro skier model. Like on one hand, you have, you know, Keegan, um, who, you know, came out of high school and turned pro essentially. But then, you know, you have people like Sadie who had a lot of different injuries that needed to kind of like really have a different training model than other athletes. And for you, right, who's, you know, you mentioned, I think you, you worked through two master's degrees early in your APU career. You work a fair amount. I don't know how much you can speak to how much you work outside of training, but then, you know, you're, you're juggling a lot more outside of skiing than one might expect from a professional athlete. 
And it seems like there's just like no two athletes on the APU team have like the exact same model of how they're making it work. And yet everybody's been able to be really successful there. So can you talk about, you know, whether that's, you know, is that coming from Eric Flora and his ability to kind of be supportive no matter what the athlete needs? And then also just, you know, what, what does your version of that model look like? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I am, un- I'm unique in, there's a couple other athletes on our team, like Scott Patterson stands out, who's really similar to me in some ways, um, who work a lot and ski train a lot, like really high volumes. And I think Eric, I remember when I first came and I was doing the two masters, I was finishing a master's at NMU and I started a master's in business at APU. And then I actually was working on the side too, as a tutor. And I remember him one time talking about filling up your cup and your cup overflowing because you have too much going on. And I kind of just had to say really honestly, like, you know, I have to work because financially that's how I keep the cup even in existence. And he was like really great about it. Like it was a really, um, you know, he understood. And I, that was really big for me because it was like, I think there was a little bit of imposter syndrome sometimes in this community where like you have kids that I don't know if all of them are really able to afford what's going on, but they don't let that show because you don't want to look like you can't do what the cool kids are doing. And so I, from that day forward, he was really supportive of me working. And so in 2017, I got a job at a nonprofit and I've worked my way up through there from a coordinator to a director level position and now deputy director. And um, I have worked anywhere from like sometimes 15 hours a week in the winter or up to 30 right now, honestly, I'm hitting like 40 hours. Um, And it's a little bit untraditional hours sometimes. And I've been so lucky to have an employer that lets me do remote work. And that has been like amazing. Um, There's been difficult moments for sure. Uh, It has not been easy to balance at all especially because like, I do care about my career. My master's from NMU is in public administration with an emphasis in state and local government and nonprofit management. And so I do like, I've always wanted to leave skiing with like, uh, you know, experience on my resume and contacts to find out what, you know, jobs that I enjoy in the future and stuff. And so it's been like a funny thing to be trying to do that at the same time, because I think a lot of people don't, but when you're going to leave a sport when you're 30 or 32 or something, you can't waste all those years. Like you're just going to be 10 years behind all your peers. And so um, I've managed to make that work. And then Eric and APU in general, like our training is set up super well for people to be able to work in the afternoons um, because we have morning sessions and then we have evening sessions on your own. So you can do them as late as you need, or sometimes I'll do them in the middle of like, middle of the afternoon and then go back to work or whatever my schedule dictates for that day. And so it's been quite easy. I should say easy if you're organized to make it work. Like I talked to Scott once and he, we discussed how transition times are the most important thing from training. You change and you drive to work. You have your lunch already packed. You eat at your desk, you work, you change to into your other training clothes. You go do your other training. Then you do, you know, like you have everything dialed and that's not necessarily a fun way to live all the time. And it's not sustainable if you don't have breaks, but it does let you do it both things. Um, And so, you know, I think I also volunteer on the side and I run a boys and girls club ski and bike and run club. And so sometimes like adding other things in is just like, 
like my socializing is really low, um, except for at athletic socializing. Like I have a lot of friends even outside of our team that we go on runs with or whatever, um, or they rollerblade next to me while I roller ski. And that stuff is like perfect. Um, and I think that's the reality of like people in the working world. Like it's not, I like, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, you know, life balance. And like, I'm a big proponent. Like mental health has been something I've been working on for the last three years. But I also think that understanding that sometimes it's going to be hard to balance it all and like making that work and finding the adjustments and APU has let me do that. I, I also don't think if I didn't live in a city, I work for a downtown improvement district. So inherently I need to be working in a downtown. Um, and being in Anchorage has let a lot of APU athletes have connections with engineering firms with, I found my job on Craigslist. So I, I'm a little bit different, but you know, there's that community that can get somebody a job and then also maybe have more flexible hours. So the location, the training model, and then just like being the right person who can manage it. I mean, you never found me at, luckily I came to APU a little bit later than like the college years, but I mean, the life has been a little bit like, okay, you get this done, you do this. Fun has to happen at the activities. It's not, there's not a lot of downtime and that's okay with me right now, like where I'm at. And as long as I start to prior continue to prioritize some mental health stuff, like it's like, okay, I can make this work. It's all about like optimization. I feel like yeah. which I can yeah, I mean, relate to as a working parent. Yes, <laughs> oh, I mean, parenting, yeah. Parenting, a lot of my friends are starting to have kids right now. And it's like a whole new ball game when you add in a dependent child. It's like, <laughs> I am really not managing that much compared to, to a parent. So props to you. <laughs> <laughs> kind of going along the same lines with, with APU and, you know, you mentioned just like that there's, there's this really positive culture, especially, you know, on the, the women's side, you've got like a really stacked team, but it seems like a really cohesive team too. Um, and a question I had, which I hope is like, I hope makes sense. Um, I was listening to, an interview with um, a professional runner, Maddie Alm, who runs for Team Boss. And so she, you know, she's on the team with Emma Coburn and Corey McGee and all these like really successful high level women. And, um, and her, like how she defines, how she has to define her success is a little bit different than, you know, she's not going for a world championship medal. She's not going for an Olympic medal. I feel like there's some parallels with the APU team and, um, and you've kind of mentioned this as well, just like, you know, having incredibly successful teammates. And I'm wondering, you know, especially now as you're kind of like thinking about, okay, what goals do I still have in skiing or what do I want skiing to look like? And what do I want my focus to be? And maybe some of that is also looking back on, okay, okay, what have I already done? Right. Or what have I accomplished? How do you define success? for yourself in, in your sport and um, maybe like take pride in what you have accomplished, um, especially, you know, when you are training alongside people who, you know, on a results sheet, I don't want it to sound like, you know, like they're what they're they have accomplished is more, more, right? But they're yeah, like, yeah, totally. yeah their, their accomplishments, maybe, you know, you've got somebody who's a gold medalist who was a former teammate and all these, yeah. you know, all these things that at least in America, we put on a very high pedestal. So when you're thinking about your own success, just what has that looked like and, and how have you kind of wrapped your head around that, especially now as you're kind of thinking about what's next? 
Yeah, that's actually such a good question because I I literally was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago um, because I was thinking about, uh, yes, yeah, some of my teammates who have accomplished a ton and and I, you know, like haven't on paper at all. And, you know, then there's some teammates that maybe on paper I've accomplished more than. And it was funny because I kind of came to like two conclusions. And the first one was that a lot, I think we need to give ourselves credit for where we start off on. Um, you know, we talked about this earlier, like I started skiing much later and I also like wasn't fast till even eight years into that. If, you know, we're using like a quantifiable fastness uh, ranking, but like, so to think about what I accomplished in, you know, my shorter time and maybe with the support levels I had or didn't have, it was like, to me, like, that's huge. And it was kind of like, wow, I maybe like showed someone that they can do that. Um, and they don't have to be this like star athlete as a child or have their family backing them or have, you know, US ski team support or whatever the thing is. It's like, where was the jumping off point and where did that person get to? And that shows, I feel like a tenacity that like I would, you know, describe as success. Um, and then the other element that has really come to light, I think as I have gotten older is like, what impact did you make on your community? And a gold medal can inspire a lot of people. I'm not diminishing that in any way, um, but I don't have a gold medal and I'm not going to have a gold medal. And so what can I do that's impactful? And I got lucky because I did start doing this program in Mountain View, which is like a really diverse neighborhood in Anchorage um, in 2017. And it's grown and kind of continued now. And we have like Novi McCabe and Luke Jager helping me coach this summer and they're fantastic. And we work with these kids. We're mostly biking and then we do field trips to trailheads, but like they don't, they don't know what skiing is. We do teach them how to ski in the winter. And like, I have to like show them YouTube videos to show them like what they're supposed to look like. Um, and you know, just kind of like, like it, it's such a perspective change. Um, but I feel that when I go there each year and sometimes I take time off in the winter when I'm traveling, like show back up and the kids are just like, so excited to see me. And it's like, it really shows you like, wow, you actually have an impact on people a lot more than you think you do. And so finding like that other side of success of like, one thing I one time was criticized for by someone close to me was you spent the whole race looking really angry. And then afterwards you just looked really tired and didn't really talk to anybody. And I was like, wow, that's like really not cool. Like, I don't want to be the person at the race that one looks like they're having a terrible time during it. Like I actually try to smile in races because I remind myself I'm doing this for fun. But then also like afterwards, like you should be thanking the volunteers. I've been an event coordinator and events are so hard to put on and volunteers are hard to find. And so like anytime someone's standing in the cold, you better be super gracious and, you know, say thank you to the event organizer if you know them and like kind of doing these little things that like at the end of the day, if I'm going to get second in a race, but be a really gracious, supportive human of the community, whereas opposed to like winning the race, like that's way more successful. And maybe it doesn't feel as like intrinsically valued, but it's, or excuse me, ex extrinsically valued. Um, but it's like, it really, I think when I look back in 10, 20, 30 years, hopefully I will like value that a lot more and see myself as more successful. So I've been trying to form this next year around that a little bit because I don't want to, yeah, I mean, I, I want to make sure that I'm like continuing to celebrate my successes myself too, of like, these are the things that matter and I am doing those things. That's a really good answer. Um, I, and, thought, I was 
prepped. <laughs> okay. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about, because I know you've got to get going pretty soon here, is just um, getting into mountain running a little bit in terms of, um, you know, you've talked a lot about just how that's a passion and something that I think you incorporate maybe more than some of your training partners into your ski training. Can you talk about, you know, how you, you've, you've done a fair amount of racing in the summertime. Um, how do you balance some of those objectives from just with skiing? Yeah, I definitely run a lot more than my teammates. I, d I do over 50% of my running for the whole year or my, ugh, my training for the whole year is running and something I've been told by coaches to reduce sometimes. But I think what happened was I actually just like really love being in the mountains and I'm a pretty fast like hiker and like an uphill runner, um, not as fast at flats and downhills and working on that, but I just really liked it. And then there was, you know, a couple teammates a few years back that were jumping into some of the races and I started doing some of them and found pretty like quick success, at least at the uphills and kind of also realized like, wow, you can do a hiking race. Like that's really cool. Like I don't really enjoy road running uh, or road running races. And like I did cross country in Minnesota where it's on a golf course and it's very flat. And I mean, it was fine, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like climbing up a mountain and not only finishing a race, but having the euphoric feeling of being on top of a mountain at the end of it. And also you can literally hike, which like is like walking. So you're doing a walking race, which I don't know. It's not that hard, I guess. Um, that being said, it does, it is hard. Like I'm not, it, it's challenging in its own way, but um, so I, I really got into it in 2019. I did a lot of racing and it was great. And then 2020, the races like didn't happen COVID. Um, but I was really interested in doing like longer marathons and specifically races down in South America, actually, and doing some really cool mountain uh, races that are like a little more adventurous. Um, and so then I started, I did the Caballo Blanco marathon in Eureka, like the born to run one. Um, and I realized like, wow, I really enjoy like travel. It's kind of like ski marathons, traveling to a place, doing a marathon or a trail race and like the whole experience and then running in the mountains with others that love running in the mountains. And so I really have wanted to like pursue that a little bit. Um, I also like, I'll be honest, like, I don't actually know if I'm that good at it. Um, I live in Alaska, like it's a small, small pond. Um, and so, you know, I, it might be like, I'm not fast at all, but I'm going to try, I think. And so what my kind of plan is, is to, I'm doing Mount Marathon, which is like a really big Alaska race here um, on July 4th. And then I'm going to do like the Cirque race here, but then a 50 K in Washington, it's the backcountry rise around Mount St. Helens and then the Pikes Peak ascent. And so just like try my hand at it. Um, I am like, I would say training a little bit more aggressively for running than skiing right now, although I've had a knee injury for like a month and a half. So it hasn't been that great, but I'm trying to make it work. Um, uphills are better than downhills. Uh, and so just like try that out a little, I would love to go do like vertical case. Like that's where I really enjoy like really like longer straight uphill stuff. Um, but I do like, I'm a little hesitant about, I know like running culture and sometimes it can get like a little bit much and I don't want to fall into that. I want it to be like a passion, um, fun and have, have it be, you know, something that like I am doing decently seriously, but not like trying to pursue Olympic level goals like that, that part of me, I think has shifted. And I don't foresee that kind of like 
I don't know. I, there's some things in running culture that are, I want to stay away from, but I definitely want to pursue it a little bit and then go to really cool places. Like I'm really excited to be down in the lower 48 where you can drive to like totally different landscapes. I mean, Alaska is great, but like there's not a big road system here. And so in the West, like to be able to go and visit people that are into it and see kind of like a little bit more of the like running culture and community down there. Like, I think it's going to be really fun. So I'm hoping to lean into that more over the next year and run in the winter where Alaska running in the winter is like sometimes really challenging and it's very cold and snowy. So, well, there might be a little bit of that in Drago also, but yeah, well, and I'm actually kind of hoping that for some, but I know that like Moab's like three hours away, which oh, yeah. is like, yeah, that's really close in my opinion. <laughs> so, um, when kind of going along with the idea of like, maybe not subscribing to some of the cultural elements of like high level running and stuff. I know like one of the races, I don't know how many times you've done Mount Marathon, but I know um, I have this just like image in my head of you in a Ninja Turtle shirt. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I try to dress up. <laughs> I think it's awesome. You know, it's like you're not, I, a, a character trait I think I value in people is like people who can take what they're doing seriously without taking themselves too seriously. Yeah, um, yeah, and totally. so that seems to really like fit the bill there um, with that race. And I think in that race, you were first to the top, right? Which is um, yeah. a pretty, you know, that's, that race has a lot of history, especially a lot of local history and a lot of local importance. Um, is there, and you're going to be back there this year? Yeah, yeah, I should be barring my knee doing something crazy, but I think it's on an upward trajectory. So I, yeah, and I like, it's funny. I love Mount Marathon for the race. It was kind of like, it's very similar to my Olympic experience. Actually, the race itself is fantastic and it's so cool. There's a lot of hype around it and I'm not one for hype. Like I literally camp outside of town, pretty far outside of town the night before, because I don't want to be in the crazy, like, I don't know, people get so intense about it. And it's just like, guys, we're running up a mountain and we're running down. Like, first of all, this is crazy and funny. And then second of all, like, really it's just a race um but I so I try to bring a little bit of fun and like yeah like wear a ninja turtle shirt um wear crazy glasses and stuff I usually end up like ditching half the stuff on the mountain because inevitably it gets in the way but like it yeah I try to make it fun and I do really love the race and it's a really great uphill because you get to like climb with your hands up a cliff and then you go through trees and it's really steep and so I've been trying to break like 37. Um, the only other person who's broke 37 is Emily Forsberg for the uphill split. And I've ran like 37.06 twice. Like literally, it's like two years apart too. And so I really want to break 37 to the up. And then I usually like, I run the down as well as I can, but I also like, I like high five people and I try to like, I don't usually win because I get passed on the downhill anyways. So I try to make it fun. So I'm like, well, you know, might as well enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. And are there any non-race objectives? Like as you're looking at Colorado and the area around Durango, like, is there anything that you've been looking at that you're yeah. excited for? Yeah. I mean, well, so like professionally, I'm really hoping I can find some, so I've been working in like downtown revitalization for five years and I really would love to shift more to environmental focus. Um, I, throughout my like masters is, I guess I always thought I'd be working in environmental nonprofit. I actually thought about going to law school for a couple of years and focusing more on that. But in Colorado, there's actually, I mean, 
and, and the lower 48, there's a lot of like conservation groups. And in that area, there's a lot of water rights issues, which I did a, a big um, project on in my degree. And so I'm kind of hoping that I can shift a little bit. And then also like, I am so excited to explore the West a little, like I've lived in Bozeman and I've, so I've been over Montana a little, but like, I have only been at Crested Butte in Colorado, which if I could afford to live in Crested Butte, I would have moved there in a second. Um, but it's like, I'm really excited to like, kind of be able to, to, I don't know, just see some new stuff and like have it a little bit more accessible. And then also like see my friends again. Like I have friends all over from, you know, different parts of my life and it's really hard to fly from Alaska for like a weekend. And so I'm hoping that I can like reunite with some of uh, the folks that I haven't been able to see over the last eight years as much. So those are kind of like my, I am quite excited. And the road trip down, I'm super excited for it because we're taking a month and I haven't worked, like not worked for a month in a very long time. And I'm really excited to not work and to like travel through Canada and Northern BC. And I'm, we're going to hit all the things. It's like a 4,000 mile trip. So uh, we, our transmission of our car is out right now. So we have to get a new transmission. So I'm really excited to have like wheels and the ability to go places and then also do a really cool trip. So <laughs> anything else that I didn't ask before we wrap up? I don't think so. I mean, thanks for the opportunity. I like, I, I'm sure every Nordic skier at the end of this or towards the end of their career could have so much to say, but I, I really do like value um, having the opportunity to share some of my stories. So I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the content you consume on Faster Skier, we encourage you to consider supporting us with a voluntary subscription with price set at your own discretion. Learn more at fasterskier.com support. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast or share it with a friend or ski buddy who might also enjoy it. Thank <laughs> you.